So if you've been following online, thank you. Uh, screens are a poor replacement for real human interactions. That's what I found during this time. But we've been going through the Proverbs, and the Proverbs have this wisdom, ancient, timeless, sacred wisdom that transcends things, right? So you can say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament and the gospel. The gospel is built on the story of Israel. It's promised in Genesis 3.15. It's not like, oh, this is something different. We still need wisdom. Even when I get saved, I'm still James chapter one asking God, give me wisdom. How do I walk out well the life that I live? So we've looked at wisdom. And man, we need wisdom right now. This last couple of weeks with George Floyd and protests and violence, man. I woke up Wednesday morning and I was just reading the news and I remember reading it and I thought to myself like, am I still dreaming? Wow, what universe is this? Oh, this is my universe. Oh, this is my world. Okay, what do I do, right? And some people have national voices where they can change direction and change the national narrative and I'm so thankful for them. That's not me. I have a local voice. I have a voice for, for Edgewater Christian Fellowship, for Grants Pass, for Josephine County. This is, this is the place God has set me. And I've been praying, Lord, what, what, how do we do this? And it, what, what's interesting to me is, like I, I outlined Proverbs back in February, before any of this. And when I'm outlining it, I had two messages left for this Sunday that I could do. Work, because there's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs on work and broken relationships. I thought, that's it. Because what Proverbs says about the brokenness we're seeing in our country is this. It's not out there. It's right in here. It's what's going on with me right now. Where am I at in this? What am I doing? And so Proverbs gives us a ton of like the wise way to walk forward with how we treat our neighbor. And our neighbor is not draw a circle around your house. Read what Jesus, how he defines neighbor. It's when you're walking on your way from Jerusalem to Jericho, you see somebody who's got the snot kicked out of him. That's your neighbor right now. It's not a location around your house. It's a proximity around your being. Where are you at right now? Because any other image bearer of me is your neighbor in that moment. How are you treating them? So it's brilliant, all right? So Proverbs shapes how to deal with broken relationships. And really a lot of it's warnings. So we're gonna do a lot of warnings. Like here's how you propagate brokenness. And then we'll end with, here's how you fix it, okay? So broken relationships, whatever they are, they begin, Proverbs would say, by belittling. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 12. Whoever belittles... Oh, the rain's back. <laughs> Oregon, Oregon in June, I guess. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. You could move your chairs right underneath here. You're still technically outside, so you're outside of our 250 number. Yeah, so if you wanted to, you could. No one will arrest you. 
At least I hope not. <laughs> no guarantees. So broken relationships begin with belittling and the word explains itself, right? You make that person belittle so that you feel like you become big. Isn't that why we belittle? That somehow in the act of making that person, that group smaller, we somehow feel like, ah, I'm not like them. I'm better. I'm bigger. This little proverb, within it are the seeds for broken relationships, for racism, for prejudice, for war, for fighting. The need that's in the human heart to be big. And if I had a lot of time, we could go back to Genesis chapter one and you see the reason why we have this need to be big. Because when God created us as his image bearers, he says to us, this is the earth, rule and reign it. You're to be my king. You're to be my queen doing what I do in the cosmos right down here on planet earth. You're to rule like me. That is a big, big mandate. But you know the story. Adam and Eve fail. And in their failure, their crown gets taken off and thrown to the ground and they lost it. They lost the bigness that they were supposed to have and everyone's trying to get it back. So Solomon puts it like this in Ecclesiastes, one of the most existential books there is. He says, God has put eternity in man's heart and we're scrambling to get it back. How big is eternity? Super big. God gave us this massive capacity, but because of our own brokenness and failure, we're not what we should be. So Paul picks up the same idea in Romans chapter eight, verses 19 and 20, where he says this, all of creation, all this out there that God made us ruler over, all of creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And if you know that term sons of God, it echoes back into the Old Testament. It's a ruling class. They're waiting for you and me to retake our rightful position as kings and queens of this place. So that's all there. But then it goes on to say, but for now, God has subject creation, you and me, to futility. So all of us sense this need. We are created to be big, we are created to be these righteous rulers, but we can't even get out of bed on time. And so we're in this dissonance, right? All the time. And you see it very early with kids, right? What do kids always do in the playground? Belittle, right? So right now I've got two extras. They're foster boys, Connor and Carter. And they're awesome, three and five. And same mom, different dads. And I'll be with them and we'll be doing something. And inevitably, they'll be like, because they kind of look at me and they're like, well, my dad does it this way, right? Oh, my dad is this. And then they'll start arguing with each other. Well, my dad is better. No, my dad is better. I'm like, bros, I know your dads, all right? Come on. <laughs> but it's in all of us, right? If I can somehow push you down, then I, I come up. So I belittle. If you're... On the outside, that means I must be on the inside, so let me try to push you out. It's this drive for self-righteousness, and it's in every group. So th this was the moment in my life where I realized, wow, this is in every human heart. And I actually was talking to 
Brendan Larson about it Wednesday night. He reminded me of it. So I'm like, that's a perfect illustration. So we do foster care. A bunch of years ago, um, we had to go and we were part of the court case because we had the kids in our home. They had to ask how the kids were doing. So my wife and I, we go to court and we're sitting there waiting and they passed out to everybody that was involved in the case, like the charges against the mom. And it was like a stack, just a, you're like, whoa, an encyclopedia. So we're kind of going through it. And it comes to this point where the judge looks at the mom and says, hey, you've had a chance to read over the charges against you. Do you have any objection to these charges? And the mom's like, oh, yes, I do. So she flips open, gets to page 12, paragraph three. It says that I am an intravenous drug user. She said, I am not an intravenous drug user. I'm not one of those. I have eaten meth. I have snorted meth. I have smoked meth, but I have never injected meth. I am not one of those druggies. Yeah. The entire group just went, lady, you've lost your kids. You're addicted to meth. You have an encyclopedia of charges against you. Where's the brokenness? Where's it like, I need help? Nope. I am somehow still good because I'm not one of those druggies. That's how deep this need is. The belittling, the thing that somehow by putting them down, I can be a little bit bigger, a little bit better. I do it, right? In my Southern Oregon, Grant's Passway. So the way I talk about other cities, right? It's not Medford, it's Dreadford. Oh, dude, you had to go over Blackwell Hill. Oh, I call it Bummer Hill, man. That's a bummer. It's not Ashland, it's Trashland. You guys don't know this one. I'm adding to your dictionary now, right? It's not LA, it's La La Land. It's not Vegas. Well, it is Vegas. Just Vegas works for Vegas. <laughs> That's all you got to say, right? What am I saying when I do that? I'm saying, yeah, you got it. You came here, you know, we're in the end now. Now I tell you that, and I'm not repenting, and I won't stop doing that. I'm just telling you, this is what I do. <laughs> because it does the same thing. It's like, hey, we're in the end crew, and they're in the out crew. And by being in the in crew, yeah, we all understand. Yep, we got it. That's what belittling does. And here's what happens when you belittle somebody. They become what you belittle, right? So you start making them into that. They didn't lie. They are a liar, that's what happens. And you create a caricature of them. And they actually become, you guys know what a caricature is? Like the cartoonist that they, they draw pictures of somebody and they amplify like one part of them. Maybe it's the unattractive part of them, right? A caricature. So I just Googled it and came up with these images, right? Remember him? What'd they do to him, right? They amplified, they caricatured him. Or this guy. The Shining, man, he's coming through the door for you. Or this guy, right? Alfred E. Newman. What's the cartoonist trying to do? He's trying to say, look, I'm gonna amplify this one part of this person and make it that person. And you look at old racist newspapers, that's exactly what they did. Let's, like, let's make this, let's caricature this people. That's what belittling does. They become the very thing that you want them to be. So if you're a Bible student, there's this great story in the Bible that I think is the story on racism. And Jesus gives it. 
And it's just so interesting, everything in it that prompts it, right? So the race problem of the day for Jesus was this. It was Samaritans and it was Jews and they didn't like each other. In fact, Jews would go way out of their way just not to travel through Samaria because they had no interactions with each other. And if you wanted to insult somebody, when Jesus was being insulted, it's John 8, 48. The insult is this. Jesus, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. You're messed up in your race and you're messed up in your religion. That was the insult, right? So there's this story, it's Luke chapter 10. And the whole story is prompted by this question. It says, a man coming to Jesus wanted to justify himself lift himself up, show that he's right, show that he's superior, show that he's big. I'm not one of those people, right? That's the start of the story. And he says, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story. We call it the Good Samaritan, where he makes the hero of the story one of those people, the wrong people. At the end of the story, Jesus looks at this man wanting to justify himself and says, who's the hero of the story? And the man can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He literally would have said it, that, that one dude, that one dude was, right? Jesus gives us some really good information there on how to fight brokenness and racism. Number one, belittle yourself. Be humble. Instead of trying to push people down, push your own soul down like, man, I got to really admit where I'm broken, where I'm a stupid idiot, where I'm a moron that you be humble. And then number two, find heroes from the group of people. That's exactly what Jesus does. I'm gonna pick a hero from that group of people and show it to you. So maybe it's a person you have ought against. Take a piece of paper, instead of belittling them, making a caricature of them, do the opposite. Write out the qualities of that person that you know are actually good. Anti-caricature. Do the opposite of that. You have to fight that in your own soul. That's what Jesus does with it. Makes a hero out of the wrong person. So broken relationships begin with belittle. They grow, number two, by repetition. Proverbs 17, verse nine. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Brokenness grows by repetition. You repeat the matter. And you begin by repeating the matter right up here. Everybody does this. When someone has hurt you or wounded you, what do you do when you're mowing your lawn? What do you do when you're weed eating? What do you do when you're driving and you've got nothing else to do? What happens in your head? You replay this tape. And this tape is, they did this to me, and I'm going to do that to them, and they're going to say this, and then I'll say that to them, and oh, I'll get them, right? You think somehow by replaying the tape, you're repaying them, but you're not. You're just repeating the matter and repeating the matter, and it's like a virus. What happens is, it actually begins to infect you. And, and then when you start coughing up in conversation, guess what you begin to talk about that person, how you talk about that group? the stuff that you're repeating in your head over and over and over. It's like a virus, and then it spreads to other people that are compromised, that maybe have the same kind of tendencies, and then they believe the same thing about that group, or they believe the same thing about that person. So now you've spread the disease. It grows 
by repetition. And what, what science has found is this. When you repeat something like that in your head, when you play that tape over and over, it actually begins to dig this groove in your brain. That it gets easier and easier during your free thinking time to just drop into that groove and rethink it. It's like, you don't even know you're doing it anymore. Just naturally, you're like, what? For the last 15 minutes, all I've done is just hammer that person. What in the world? Because it grows by repetition. You just over and over and over. We call that thing a grudge. We call it a grudge. And here's what's really sad. You begin to become what you meditate on. So by repeating these bad things about this person, you dig a groove in your brain and you actually, Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You become infected with the exact disease that you wanted them to have. It's a crazy thing. I'll give you two examples of this. Um, Animal Farm. Who in high school had to read the Animal Farm? Okay, that's pretty decent. Yeah. So I did. Um, George Orwell, it's not... Animal House with John Belushi. That's a different movie. Animal Farm is that story about the animals rising up and throwing off the oppressor of the farmer, right? You guys know the story, right? They kick him out. The pigs are the leading guys. They want to throw off this oppressor. So they get rid of the farmer and then the pigs take over and they have this saying, all animals are equal. Remember that? It's paint on the side of the barn. Let's work for equality. Let's, let's, let's be equal, right? But the story goes on. What happens? The pigs begin to grow and change. And the pigs begin to say, you know what? We could actually sell some of these animals and make some money off of them. And they start to do that, right? And then they change all animals equal to all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. At the end of the book, the animals are all looking into the farmhouse and there's a bunch of humans in there and pigs in there and they can't tell the difference. The oppressed has become the oppressor because they've meditated on it and they thought about it. They got infected with the same virus. And history shows us this. So I'll give you an example. Um, Miroslav Volf, who I've mentioned him before. There's no one that I've read that has influenced me more when it comes to broken relationships and religious bigotry or racism than Miroslav Volf. So Harvard professor, um, 25 years ago, there was this war in Serbia. It was both race and religious, Muslim, Christian, uh, just everything bad, right? So one group starts to fight one side, then the other group retaliates and just goes on and on and on. Really, really bad time. So he, he was part of that. He knew that because that was his, where he came from. So he reflects on it and he says something. This is just such a brilliant, sad quote. Listen to this. My friends were decent people, helpful neighbors. They never chose to plunder and burn. They never chose to rape and torture, nor did they secretly enjoy such things. A dormant beast, however, was awakened in them from its uneasy slumber. The motives of those who set out to fight against the brutal aggressors were self-defense and injustice. But the beast in others enraged the beast in them. And so the moral barriers holding the beast in check were broken. In resisting evil, people were entrapped by it." End quote. If you know the war in Serbia, that's exactly what happened. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. The oppressed would become the oppressor and then the oppressor would become the oppressed. It was back and forth, back and forth because there's something broken in here. 
And just look at history. Chairman Mao, right? We want to set our people free. We're oppressed here by this system. Throws it off, and then he kills 50 million of his own people. Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot. Like, something's broken in here. By repetition, by meditating on something, you become the very thing that you fight and that you hate. You have to be really careful of this. So what do you do? What do you do when you're in your free time and you're mowing your lawn or you're weed eating and you're like, this, this virus just comes in? I call it my 30-second rule. And I give it out in counseling. I say, you got 30 seconds to take care of that or it will infect you. And 15 minutes later, you're like, what did I just do? Why did I have that conversation again? You got 30 seconds. You got to interrupt it. And you interrupt it by prayer is what I say. You pray for your kids. You pray for your wife. I don't necessarily recommend praying for that person until you get a little bit healed because you'll go right down that same spiral. You, almost, you have to distract your brain and say, Jesus, help me here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to play this tape again. Help me. Pray for me. I'll take all the prayer I can get, please, right? And what happens is you switch that off. You turn the hose off. The weed dries up. You get free from it. You, you got it, the 30-second rule. Or one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4 eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? We taught this a couple months ago. Right? These eight things are what you're supposed to put in your brain and think through. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. And to help you remember, I gave you a brilliant acronym. Right? <laughs> That's a freebie. You get what you pay for. You gotta interrupt that cycle because it grows by repetition. Right? And then, then brokenness, it gets on steroids by these two things. Number one, gloating. Proverbs 24, 17. Don't gloat when your enemy falls. How hard is that? Someone that has hurt you and misused you and wounded you, how hard is it not to gloat? When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. How hard is that? Oh man, that's hard because you're thinking, man, they're finally getting it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Good job. You did a good job there. Or the Lord, listen to this. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. How crazy is that? I'm telling you, this is one of the most enigmatic passages in Proverbs. I looked at 10 different plus, 10 plus commentaries. What is it saying here? None of them knew what this proverb is saying. It's crazy. But as providence would have, we've been reading through the Proverbs. Thursday, we read this one. My wife did. I'm like, did you just read that? It was in the Message Bible, so it's really good. I said, here's what that would be like. That'd be like right now, Elijah, my 12-year-old, gets in trouble. I said, okay, Elijah, you're in trouble. You're gonna have to whatever, do something. And then Gabrielle, his older sister, is like, yeah, teaches you right. Yeah, I'm glad dad got you. And I heard that and say, all right, no way. Elijah's not in trouble. He gets to eat ice cream all day and play video games and watch movies. You'd be like, that's nutty parenting. That's what this proverb just said God does. And if you start gloating and rejoicing that your enemy 
has been under God's punishment, God's gonna say, well, I'm not punishing him anymore. What? Right? This is a Monday morning, hot cup of tea for an hour. What in the world is this proverb saying? Minimally, here's what it's saying. God hates it when you and I gloat. It's so anti to his kingdom, so anti to who he is. God hates it minimally. Don't gloat. Number two, hunting. Proverbs 24, seven and eight. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? It's the idea of a man watching his neighbor and finding something. Yeah, I can finally get him. I'm building a court case against him. Don't we all do that? If someone has hurt us or wounded us, aren't we always looking for more evidence to add to our tape player, to add to how bad they are? And here's the thing. If you're looking for evidence against a person or a group, guess what? You will find it. You will find what you're looking for. If you're, finding, if you're looking for evil, if you're looking for brokenness, you will find it. There's a scientific term, it's called confirmation bias. That when you have made up your mind about somebody and you begin to search for a court case evidence against them, you will find it. And you will disregard and not listen to anything that opposes your view. Confirmation bias. Here's where it gets even weirder. When you retell the event that hurts you, you're not actually retelling the event anymore. You're actually retelling the last time you told the event. It's called confirmation memory. So what that means is this. If somebody hurt you and you've repeated that to your friends and to your spouse and to other people, every time you repeat it, you're not repeating the event, you're repeating the last time you talked about it. Do you see how the evidence could move? Absolutely. It's why fishermen, the fish always gets bigger and they really believe it because every time they repeat it, it's getting bigger and they believe it, it's confirmation memory. Like the heart is so broken we belittle, we repeat, we gloat. And then we have this confirmation bias that we just find evidence and it just makes relationships impossible. These are the warnings. These are the warnings. So what do we do? How do we heal ourselves? What do we change? Look at these two proverbs and we're done. And I'm just gonna warn you beforehand. Sometimes you can't fix broken relationships. Romans 12, 18 says this. If possible... Right, that's giving you a lot of like, hmm, sometimes it's impossible. So far as it depends on you, you can't control how the other person responds to you. All you can do is control you. Live peaceably with all. Sometimes you'll do everything right and that relationship will still stay broken because you can't control that person. What Romans is saying is make sure and keep it on their side of the fence. You do what you're supposed to do. You can't control them. Okay, so here's two things. Number one, and this is super hard, rebuke. And there's a bunch of Proverbs I could have grabbed. I grabbed this one. Better is open rebuke. Now, I just think about the proverb for a second. Let it sink in. If you're comparing two things, better is open rebuke, meaning in front of people, around others. Better is open rebuke 
than hidden love. Really? Because I'd prefer hidden love, honestly. Anyone here like, you know what? I'd love to be rebuked. So if you have anything, please, I'll come up on stage right now. You can just start rebuking me. Nobody likes that. And yet Solomon is saying, listen, this is so important that an open rebuke where other people hear you is actually better than their hidden love for you. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. The way things get changed, the way relationships actually get healed is a proper rebuke. And you can read Luke 17. Jesus actually talks about rebuke, a proper rebuke, which means both giving them if somebody has ought against you so you stop festering on it and receiving them. And the way that you receive a rebuke is really important. Never make this mistake. Never say to somebody, hey, well, you just need to get over it. If you're the one that has wounded somebody, that is never your space. That can be a counselor or a friend or somebody else. But you and I, if we're the wounding person, if we hurt someone, you don't get to say, hey, you just need to get over it. It's not your place. So let me give you an example that you you and I would never do. By saying, hey, just get over it, forget it, come on. So I've been to Israel twice. Love that land, love those people. Both times I went to the um, Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust Museum there. One of the hardest places in the world. But I went back a second time because it's so necessary to go and to walk through and to feel that, right? And the hardest room for me is you go into this, it's a blacked out room. You're walking on glass and there is one light and that light is reflected a million times. And that reflected light is, every reflection is one child that was killed in the Holocaust, one Jewish child. And then as you're in there in this Really, it's a crazy space because it's just light around you, little teeny lights with darkness. The names and the ages of the kids are being read off to you, one after another, after another, after another. I don't know how you don't just weep in that place. It's absolutely terrifying, okay? So who in their right mind would say to Israel, you just need to get over the Holocaust? Come on, it's been 80 years. Just get over it. I mean, there's very few survivors left from the Holocaust. Just get over it. You'd say, that is insane. You never say that. Because it's shaping them as a culture and as a people. And it's protecting them from future abuses. Never say to people, get over it. That's not your place. You receive rebuke. And if you've been wrong in kindness, velvet steel, you give rebuke. This is how you hurt me. We need more rebuke if you want cleaned up relationships because faithful are the wounds of a friend. And number two, this is a saying I have around the office right now, and it's use the water. Use the water. Proverbs 24, excuse me, 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, gloat, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Does this text sound familiar? It should because the apostle Paul grabs it and he quotes it in Romans chapter 12, talking about vengeance, talking about broken relationships, and he adds on to it this little phrase, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The weapon you and I have in broken relationships is goodness. Right? So I have this saying, in every broken relationship, in every interaction, in every hot situation, 
we all have two buckets that we carry around. One of them is a bucket of water and one of them is a bucket of gasoline. Which one are you gonna throw into the situation, right? When that guy's name comes up or that group's name comes up or whatever it is in conversation, you have two buckets. You can throw gas on it and just get hot and fire and go crazy. Or you can throw water on it into the opposite and say, well, you don't know this about that guy, this about that gal. You don't know what they did over here. You can throw water on that situation. Proverbs would say, if you want healed relationships, use the water. Constantly be using the water. That's what we're supposed to do, all right? So at, this morning, actually this week, as I've, as I've thought about this, I'm like, this is super hard. I don't know anything harder. That's why I think Romans 12, 18 is like, if it's possible, whatever depends on you, Live at peace, because this is hard. Peace costs you something. Do you know that? So if you have a home group in your house today, praise God for that. And there's another family that comes into your home, and, and they're a different kind of crew than you. They raise their kids differently, and they're doing MMA off your couches. And they land on their, your coffee table, and they just, boom, it splinters. Okay? You can forgive them. Be like, hey, it's Okay. You know, no problem. It was my great-grandfather's table that he personally made himself. Brought it on the Oregon Trail out here, yeah. You can forgive them, but somebody still has to pay for the broken table. It's gotta cost you something. Peace costs. It is costly. That's why Jesus would say this. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. By your awesome bumper stickers. By your T-shirts by the fact that you didn't have a beer with pizza? Is that how? No, by your love. Why? Because that's so rare and so hard. It's so rare and it's so hard. And so when I read all this stuff and I think it through in my own life, I just say, oh my goodness. I am an insecure, self-righteous, belittling, us versus them creating, gas-throwing, grudge-making mess. Jesus, I need your help. Like the only way I'm gonna demonstrate love is, Jesus, I need your help. I'm not doing this on my own. And so that's why we have communion. Because we come to church, to be honest, yeah, there's brokenness in me. Yeah, it's right here. It begins right here. And I need help. And so we come to the great physician and say, Jesus, help us. And so you've got communion right now, and I'm not gonna apologize every Sunday for communion, but I will today. So we try not to use these, but with the regulations the way they are, we have to use these, and they're not good, right? So almost 11 years ago, we're at a family camp, and my son Elijah was one year old. And we were having a, a round kind of the campfire talk at this camp. And, and Elijah at one, he's just eating dirt. You know how kids do that? He's just eating dirt, just dirt, 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 dirt. And I'm trying to keep dirt out of his mouth and he's fighting me because he wants to eat the dirt. So I had one of these, I opened it up and I gave Elijah, my one-year-old, that piece of, we'll call it bread. And he put it in his mouth, just been eating dirt, loving dirt. 
took two bites of it, spit it out. I knew right then, it's even worse than dirt. So, my apologies. But it's not the flavor of whatever you're eating that matters. It's the reception in your heart. Are you belittling yourself? Jesus, I got broken relationships. I have broken ways of thinking. Save me for myself. That's the heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Is that how you're coming? Because that's what Jesus is looking for. He's the potter. He's the great physician. He heals us of this virus. So Jesus, today, we remember the good news, the great exchange, that you took our brokenness and you took our pain and you took our corrupt ways and you plunged it into yourself absorbing the penalty that we deserve so we could get the reward you earned. So this day, Lord, I pray for myself. I pray that you would heal my heart. I pray that you would change me, transform me into your image. I pray that for all of us, Lord, that where we have broken relationships, we would walk this out well. We'd use water, not gasoline. We'd, in the kind Jesus style, rebuke where we've been hurt and receive them where we need to. And that we could see reconciliation happen. So we pray as we partake that you would heal our hearts. Let's eat together. And the cup where sin is put into remission, Lord. Our hearts Contend towards gloating, hunting, and belittling, and repetition, and they need to be put into remission. We need to be empowered by you to walk out these doors and go to war with a world that's very different than the kingdom we belong to. And we need help. So as we drink, may this be the elixir of the kingdom of heaven, enabling us to go out with the weapons that we have, the weapons of your spirit that produces the fruit of the spirit, the weapons of the gospel that we've already got righteousness. We are not working from a deficit. Our cup overflows because of your righteousness. That we don't have to be overcome of evil, but we can overcome evil with good. So as we drink, may this be the elixir of heaven. May we go out and do war with the weapon of good, with the weapon of love.
and joy and peace and long-suffering and meekness and temperance. As we've been forgiven, may we forgive. Let's drink together. And we pray this in your perfect name. Amen.